Welcome. You're listening to the AI Infusion podcast series hosted by Shalini Kapoor. Thank you, Jeff. And welcome listeners to the next episode of our podcast series on AI Infusion. AI Infusion explores what does it take for enterprises to infuse artificial intelligence in their business processes. On this episode Four of AI Infusion, we have a special guest from IBM Research. For our listeners, IBM Research has been around for 76 years and has close to 3,000 researchers today. This research group has had six Nobel laureates and six Turing Awards. They are present globally, ranging from Yorktown Heights, Almaden, Zurich, Bangalore, Tokyo, Haifa, Sao Paulo, and many more cities and countries. Their work on artificial intelligence is far-reaching in science and also helps IBM in launching new businesses in AI. So dear listeners, today I'm delighted to welcome Sriram Raghavan, Vice President of IBM Research AI. Sriram sets and drives the execution of AI research agenda across the globe, which eventually helps us launch new AI software products in IBM. Sriram has been working in AI for years. He's an alumnus of Stanford University and Indian Institute of Technology, Chennai. Friends, it's a privilege to have Sriram with us talking about how research is driving AI in business. Welcome Sriram to the AI Infusion podcast. Hi Shalini, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you and all your listeners. Thank you. So excited to have you here. So let's get started and jump into what we have for the listeners today. Uh, Shriram, AI is not just simple technology. It's a set of building blocks driving digital transformation. So let's first discuss what is the potential for enterprise AI? You are in research, so maybe you can help us predict where are we on the trend? Great, great question, Shalini, and, and we get this all the time. And I think in your question, you already made the link between, I think, the, the technology of AI and what the business possibilities, because you used the word digital transformation. And I think that is at, at the center for why there is such a tremendous opportunity and we're all excited about what, what AI is here to, you know, to make happen for us. Make no mistake, we are early in the journey, but we're definitely accelerating. Now, depending on who you ask, you know, the revolution created by digital transformation powered by AI is going to be, I think, fairly confidently as big or as impactful, if not more, than the industrial revolution. So that's a pretty big bar. But I think it's going to happen much, much faster than that revolution. And the reason is that it was already happening faster, but just take what we've all experienced right across the world with a pandemic. That has had another multiplier effect so that people who were thinking about digital transformation are now executing digital transformation. People who are thinking about, you know what, let me transform and touch 10% of my organization now want to touch 50% of the organization or more. So we're going to see a compression in what was already a trend and we're already seeing that compression. And I think the pandemic has been in some respects for all of the ills and challenges that as post society is already going to, one of the positive outcomes is going to be that we're going to more actively embrace digital technology and AI is at the, at the center of that transformation. Yeah. Yeah. So, so much with you on this. 
so so what's a springboard for accelerating ai adoption are there are there challenges which you want to which you want to outline also absolutely absolutely so uh, let's start with some examples of success and then i'll connect that to the challenges right okay so, examples of success um let, let me look at some of our most recent customer examples right what did paypal do with us you can imagine a company like paypal that helps with money transfer and and, and digital payments they had uh, an, an enormous growth uh, motivated by the pandemic as the adoption of you know digital payments skyrocketed and they had you know customer service requests calls and questions go through the roof and they worked with ibm to handle those millions of conversations driving better customer experience quicker response and obviously benefited their business to be able to run it more agile and so today technology from ibm research and ibm powers millions of conversations a month at paypal another example is uh, you know somebody like Wonderman Thompson, who interestingly is in the business of building models for customers. They build models for uh, marketing and customer analytics for a variety of industries across the world. And they worked with us to accelerate the rate and pace at which they are able to build, deliver, and deploy models for their customers. So these are all examples where by embracing the latest innovation coming from the open community from academia and from institutions such as IBM Research that I'm a privilege to be a part of, clients are accelerating the rate and pace at which they're able to make AI real. But we know that there are a few challenges that everybody faces. And it's about countering those challenges and bringing innovation to those challenges that's going to differentiate who accelerates faster versus who's going to be left behind and, and, and adapts this trend that's slower. So what are those challenges? I typically put them in three buckets. Uh, data science challenges, data challenges, and operational challenges. So let me sort of spend a few minutes on each one of them. Sure, sure. So data science challenges. Now, this is the part that everybody gets, which is because this is the part that everybody closely associates with AI. AI is about building models, right, Charlie? That's what, you know, everybody will talk to you about. But yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Building models is important, it's critical, but but today, if you want to infuse AI into every business process, into every aspect of your organization, we just don't have enough number of people and skills and time to be able to build all the AI models we want to deploy. So one of the challenges people face is, hey, I am able to do first AI model, but now if I want to do the next thousand, where am I going to get the people to go build a thousand, right? So that's the data science scaling challenge. How do we accelerate the act of building effective models? And what can we do to bring innovation there? But a step before that, which often is the bigger problem, is the data challenge. People say, look, I found a wonderful use case. I can probably bring the skills to bear. I can partner with you, uh, IBM, to go build this model. But you know what the data that you need to go build this model? Uh, that's not yet ready. It's poor quality. It's all over the place. It takes forever to bring it together and integrate before you can do the model. So that's the data challenge. Then the last is sort of the other side. So we started with modeling, which is sort of in the middle. There are challenges to scale because of skills and talent. Before modeling comes the data challenge. And after modeling comes the deployment operational challenge. Great, I built a model. POC worked great. I got all the numbers I wanted. But you know what? Before I can deploy it, I need to know, will it continue to perform? How do I monitor? Am I going to have challenges with bias in the model? Is it going to start drifting? What's the instrumentation that I have to govern? That's the operational challenge. So all our customers and clients across the world, independent of industry or domain, 
the the things that they are working to move past to accelerate AI adoption fall into these three buckets of data, data science, and operational challenges. Very interesting. And and believe me, Sriram, the scale of AI and and how models actually work in production is is driving is driving our customers nuts. And and that's that's where IBM has invested so much. And and we are helping our customers actually build it at and 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 deploy it at scale so it's it's such an important part and thanks thanks for um highlighting that um i'll, I'll shift a little bit of gears uh, because i know you have been involved in you know getting the getting the right three strategic areas for ibm in ai get established mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I want to understand, and of course, uh, you know, for our listeners, those three strategic areas are language, automation, and trust. Mm -hmm. So, will you talk about why did you pick these three, and what? I mean, maybe just talk about each one of them. That what are we doing here? Sure, absolutely, absolutely, and and I, and and we we were very purposeful and careful in picking these sort of three big imperatives, and this. These are imperatives both for the IBM research organization and our focus, and also the imperatives for how we work with the parts of IBM business, with your organization and many others, to, to embed that innovations into the technology we take to market. So why these three? And, and let me start, of course, that these three are on top of one more imperative that cuts across all of our strategy, not just, AI, not, not just in AI in particular, which is the fact that the technology runs on a common hybrid cloud platform, right? So that's a common underpinning because it's critical that as we build AI capabilities, the capabilities have the flexibility to run, work on top of data or operate and, and give you results on data wherever the data sits. So, so that is like a, a base imperative that everything we do runs on a common hybrid cloud platform, which for us is what we do with Red Hat OpenShift. But on top of that, the reason we pick these three. So first is language. Look. The, the text and communication, whether it is emails, whether it is Slack messages, whether it is documents, whether it is websites, whether it is you know information records, language or language is fundamental to how business processes work. Um, this is how we interact with customers. This is how we interact with partners and stakeholders. Every business process, every workflow is about making sense of unstructured data. So the ability to apply natural language processing to better understand document, better understand emails, better understand conversation technology, and be able to use that to transform the way we run business processes is to me a no brainer. So investment in enterprise NLP, and remember I use the word enterprise carefully because there's a lot of innovation in natural language processing, but we've got to go bring that in the context of our enterprises can make sense of their unstructured data. That was obvious as a first imperative. The second imperative, and, and maybe just to give an example of why I use the word enterprise NLP every time and emphasize enterprise is think about um, bringing the latest NLP innovations. I can't bring the latest NLP innovations if I can't first get the text out of where the text is sitting inside an enterprise. Many, many situations that is sitting deep inside documents. These may be armies of PDF documents, Word documents, PowerPoint charts. How do I make, how do I bring the text out of them so then I can analyze them for insights and customer value? And so we have now done a ton of work in IBM research on what we call deep document understanding. 
bringing AI to automatically understand the structure, format of documents, charts, tables, figures, so that you can extract the unstructured text, that you can then apply all of the innovations in NLP to go make sense of that, right? Just as an example of why it's bringing both NLP innovation, but applying it in an enterprise context. Does Got that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's no, and the deep document understanding is, is, is really important for our enterprises because so much of content and data embedded in their documents all over, all across the enterprise. Exactly, exactly. And so that's the enterprise context of our work in, 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 in language. The second piece, automation, goes directly to our previous conversation. So we talked about three kinds of challenges, right? Data challenges, data science challenges, and operational challenges. One way to address those challenges is always to put a lot of people in effort. But we know that doesn't scale. It doesn't scale because you can't find enough people. And if you had to do it only by every model requiring an army of 20 people to build it, 100 people to deploy it, and 40 people to get the data ready for the model, okay, then maybe you can afford three models, but can you afford to do 3,000 models on how long it will take? You won't scale. So to us, the second imperative in automation is automation of the life cycle of AI, automation of model development, automation of data quality, data cleansing, and data integration, automation of model deployment and monitoring. So think of, therefore, our automation pillar as addressing all those three categories of challenges we talked about earlier and building tools and accelerators to assist human beings to do that process, but do it faster, quicker, and at scale. So you can go from two little models into you know, thousands of models embedded in every part of your organization. So that's the, the second imperative. Yeah, and got it. As one example you know, is our work in AI automation, is our work in data quality, where we, we, are, we are embedding tools and algorithms and techniques so that you don't have to rediscover every time manually what you need to do on the data to get it ready, which of the 10 different models that I need to do, what parameters I need to do, we can bring a lot of automation into that process to accelerate, right? That's so auto AI, auto ML, uh, auto data quality. These are all examples of work that we do in that second bucket. Then the last bucket is trust. And look, Shani, this one, I think, I think the world is starting to appreciate how critical trustworthy AI is to being Absolutely. able to deploy AI in the enterprise, right? You've seen this now, whether it is use of AI in hiring, it's the use of AI in financial services, it's the use of AI in, and pretty much if you're going to make use AI in decision making, which is what organizations are doing, you cannot afford not to have foundational constructs in your technology platform, in your processes, in your governance, to make sure that you understand how the AI is behaving, how you have control over the AI, that it is robust and secure, that you understand what biases are built in, what you, can, what you need to do to mitigate those biases. So that whole area of trustworthy AI is central. It's a cross-cutting concern. And so which is why we picked that as the third imperative. And interestingly, as you know, trustworthy AI is an area where in IBM research, we've been doing now work for well over seven, eight years, much before you know, a, a trustworthy AI became a, a topic of a common concern. Uh, and it is an area where we have a large body of scientific work. We have released a lot of tools in the open, and then we are bringing all of that technology into our platform so that as our clients build and deploy AI models, 
the ability to instrument the entire life cycle and apply the key pillars of trust is part of the platform. And that's why that is our third pillar. Great. I think, I think you have outlined it pretty clearly. Language, automation, trust, these are the three areas where we are going to focus from research, building products, and reaching clients uh, from that perspective. So, um, um, pretty clear, pretty clear picture. Um, so now I would like to understand, um, you talked about the automation part and I want to delve a little bit deeper into that. And I know that, you know, there's a perception that model building is a key activity. Everybody's about, Hey, let's build this model. And, and you did talk about the data scientists prefer that, but you also differ. You say that that's not the only thing. So would you, would you tell us and our listeners, um, why we need to look beyond model activity and what is the, the operations in AI and, and just spend some, some time on that. Sure. And, and let's do this. Uh, let's do this with, uh, with some examples and numbers, right? Shalini? So, uh, yeah. if you, if you sort of have this mental picture and, and I actually use it, you know, when I use charts, think of this mental picture of three stages of the AI life cycle. There is the, the data stage which means that you, this is where you acquire, prepare, clean, make the data ready for AI. There is the modeling stage, and then there is the deployment monitoring or operation stage. And people, you know, as you said, automation is needed everywhere, but often a lot of the focus on automation innovation tends to be in that middle model bucket. But if you look at the actual AI life cycle, how much time is spent in modeling versus how much time is spent in the first phase, which is getting the data ready, and how much time is spent after you have a reasonable model in actually getting it deployed in production. If you go back and look at actual experiences, those other two bookends consume well over 80-90% of the time than just the modeling phase. Now, that is not to minimize the fact that effective models and innovative models are in critical. Of course they are, because that's where they get you to actually deliver business value. But if you just focused on that, you would still have not driven automation and scale in where people are spending fair amount of time. So that's the reason why we always think of automation from an end-to-end -end life cycle perspective. Now, why also life cycle? Because these things are connected. Let's take an example. You you had you used an initial data set to let's say build a model, and let's you know use example Shalini that our teams work together in, right? Using AI to do better prediction and management of physical assets, right? In heavy industries, for example. Now you've done that work. You 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 built a model that gave great results. Let's say you start to deploy it. Now you want to have a robust monitoring infrastructure that is able to say, you know what? We're starting to see streams of data where. I predict that our model is not is going to start to have low confidence, right? You want to get that signal as early as possible. You want to then say if the model continues to operate and it starts to have lower confidence or its accuracy level starts to go down, you need signal and alert for you to be able to intervene. Then you want to go take that data, analyze it to understand why it is happening, and then come back and decide whether you need to just redo the modeling with more data, do you need to acquire additional label data or is the data that is starting to come in that the model is operating on looking very different from the data that you trained on. So you need to go back and maybe go all the way back to the, to the first step and change the way you acquire and update your data. You need to complete this life cycle and this has to happen on an ongoing basis, right? Does that make sense? Now, yes, absolutely. today without an end to end life cycle view, 
you may have a beautiful automation for the middle piece, which means that anytime you click a button, out pops the best model possible. But you don't have the rest of the infrastructure to even invoke it because you don't know when your model is going wrong. You don't know what you have to do to improve the model. So the fact that I have an amazing ability to create new models quickly is useless because the rest of the framework doesn't exist. That's the reason why we have, have such a strong focus in, in research and in IBM in our data and AI platform on an end-to-end -end life cycle view because you want information from operations to flow back into modeling, to flow back into data acquisition, to flow back into data quality. And you need that flow of information seamlessly across all three, three different stages. Right, right. But but Sriram, is it, isn't data distributed in several places and sometimes it's not possible to build an AI model just because it is either proprietary or there are some privacy issues or you know, the data is existing in different, and, and our clients face this, right? Our clients have uh, situations where data is all over the organization. So what are the innovations? What do you suggest uh, uh, for such kind of client situations? It's a great question, Charlene. I think there are multiple technology innovations we're working on to address that problem. One is in some in cases where you can take the AI to where the data resides, that is one viable option, which is why I go back to one of our imperatives. Everything we do in AI and language trust and automation is on top of a common hybrid cloud platform so that you are able to deploy the AI closest to the data. And you know that with the emergence of edge, that's going to become even more critical, that more and more of that actual AI inference has to happen at the end. So that sort of, that works in some situations. A second pattern is this thing that we call federated learning. The ability to build models by pulling together without having to move all of the data from the sources into one place, but allow model building to happen, if you will, in a federated or a distributed fashion. And, and in fact, we have released an open source framework, a federated learning framework. You know, we, we can share that the resource with your listeners. And, and we have a, an amazing amount of innovation on top that lets you build different classes of models without having to bring all of the data together. And there are lots of flavors in that challenge, right? I think you alluded to a couple. One is sometimes it's just not physically possible. I'm permitted to move, but I can't just move all these bits to one place. It's just too expensive, too slow, too cost prohibitive. Two could be a scenario where I'm not permitted to move the bits. I have regulatory reasons, residency laws that prevent me from moving the bits. So I may have, imagine customer data sitting in three different geographies in three different countries. The laws of the country do not allow me to move the bits, but I still want to build a meta model that combines the data from all three customers. Can I do that effectively and, and still build the latest AI algorithms, but operate without moving the bits, right? So that's sort of the, the regulatory reason. And, and, and the, the answer could be that in some scenarios, the first type of approach works where you are able to move the AI to where it runs. In, in other scenarios, you may have to have a federated learning approaches where you get to build AI by automatically um, combining data from multiple sources, but without actually physically moving the data. And I think this space is going to continue to become critical, which is why we have a lot of work and investment and research in, in this space. And I think an extrapolation of this space is going to be, this is going to accelerate from not just regulated industries and data movement challenges, it's going to become an imperative as we talk more and more about AI at the edge. Got it. Yeah. And federated learning with edge. Uh, I mean, that's what with 5G and all coming 
we would need it for kind of the kind of use cases which our industries are going to demand. So, exactly. so very, very interesting. Uh, now, the question which I keep thinking is, uh, you know, AI is helping us uh, so much across industries. Can we use AI to build AI? Why not use, you know, beat it at its own game? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. By the way, you know, AI for AI is is very much at the heart of our previous discussion on automation. So, because remember, what is the automation we are looking to build? I want to use AI to do automatic data cleansing. I want to use AI to automatically detect quality challenges and potentially mitigate them. I want to use AI to maybe synthetically generate data to augment it. I use AI to automatically search across a wide space of model parameters to pick automatically the best parameters that optimize your model performance. So the entire discussion around, around automation is really an example of using AI for AI. Because you're using AI to help you do the actual activities of an AI life cycle, and you're trying to accelerate that. And you're absolutely right. I think that is, we're seeing more and more of that happening. Traditionally, as we spoke about before, AI for AI was applied very much to the modeling phase. People have been doing hyperparameter optimization, model search for a long time. But more and more AI for AI is extending to either side, right? We talked about the data side and the operation side. Can I bring AI to better data quality? Can I use a better AI to do automatic model monitoring? Can I use AI to do better testing of models, right? All of these now become opportunities to apply AI technology to remove the barriers in building and deploying AI models. And look, there are more innovative approaches. Let me give a couple of other examples, right? Uh, that go beyond just applying AI to the life cycle. Think of the way uh, data science teams in an organization operate. If you have a, if you have a company that let's say has 100% data science team, you have a lot of people building lots of different models. Now, it's more than likely, and it almost always happens, that there is a lot of knowledge embedded in the work by these 100 data scientists, right? So if, you know, many of these data scientists may be working with similar overlapping data set, they may be doing different tasks. One person may be predicting customer churn, another person may be building a better marketing model, but chances are both of these data scientists are possibly accessing an overlapping subset of data, just building different models. Now, one of the challenges is, is made today, if they all operate in silos, a lot of what they have discovered and innovated in terms of the right transformation of the data, the right cleansing of the data, uh, the right transforms to apply, the right feature engineering, today, each of them, that all that knowledge is embedded sitting in their individual notebooks, right, that they may use to develop their models. So we're also working on this idea of augmenting the knowledge of data science teams by allowing both collaboration and automatic extraction of information and features from across data science yes. teams. And, and you can do this within an organization, just, just across the work that they do. We can also bring in external knowledge, automatically bringing in external knowledge from our domain to augment data science teams. For example, I mean, just as an example, we all know that uh, if you are doing some work in, let's say, um, nutrition and health, you know, body mass index is an important metric. Now, body mass index is a well understood transformation. So if you have the, the parameters that go into BMI, a data, science a data scientist might obviously go compute BMI, add it as one more column and see whether that feature is useful for the model. Okay, that's okay for some domains where that is well understood, but every such domain has some interesting nuances of 
new features and new transformations that people know over time. Why should everybody rediscover it? Can we automatically use AI to extract these transforms, make them available, so that the 100th data scientist is much, much more productive than the first data scientist because they can lean on and leverage the work of the other data scientists. So that's another example of bringing AI to AI. Got it. So, so essentially, it's going to be a nirvana for enterprises that you know they are using AI to scale, to build, to measure performance, performance metrics. Very interesting. Um, so, uh, Sriram, I really need to ask this: What is your favorite innovation in AI, and and where do you see the future in say three or five years? Just just paint the future for us. Sure, absolutely. Look, there are two. Two topics that we're actively working on that I'm, I'm very fascinated and excited about. One is this world of neurosymbolic AI. And the other, of course, is you know, what, uh, what the world of hardware innovation is going to do to transform AI. So let me talk about a little bit about these two. Um, so neurosymbolic AI. And I think, uh, Charlie, you and I have spoken about the fact that if you look back at the history of AI, early on, in, in, in the 40s and 50s and, and before the advent of uh, statistical uh, use of statistical techniques, the approach to AI was very much around symbols and knowledge representation. Writing down knowledge, codifying them, and then using logic and reasoning to come up with new insights. Now, that didn't scale because at that time we didn't have the, the data or the capacity to be able to actually do that at scale. Then statistical techniques, or today we call them neural techniques, you know, came to bear. And we have seen an amazing amount of success by the fact that with huge compute and large amounts of data, we're able to scalably apply them. And now, you know, these neural techniques, both statistical ML, deep, deep learning, and all of the innovation that we have seen in the last decade or more, we've seen amazing success. But I think the next tranche, which is what we call neurosymbolic AI, is going to be about bringing these two together. Because both approaches have value. The latter approach allows you to learn a lot more from the data, but often can be harder to build trustworthy AI, is less explainable, and, and, and we know always depends on having access to huge volumes of data. The symbolic approach allows you to bring in knowledge much more seamlessly, is potentially uh, capable of yielding more explainable models, but we know that both have benefits that we need to bring together. So I think the, the work that we are doing and we see happening in the world of AR on neurosymbolic techniques, bringing these two approaches together is really, really exciting. And we're already seeing some of these things start to bear fruit. And I expect that you know, over the next three to five years, we will see neurosymbolic AI showing up in many, many areas as bringing the best of these two approaches to AI together to, to move the needle on the art of the possible. So that's sort of one, uh, one area. The second area is obviously the opportunity that we're seeing for bringing in new hardware. Look, today, what do we do? We do AI on hardware that necessarily wasn't created for AI. We do it on CPUs and GPUs. Fantastic. But we know that if AI workloads are going to be at the heart of enterprise workloads and that is going to grow, then there is an amazing opportunity to build hardware that is really geared to meet the needs of AI workloads, to be performant, to efficient, to scale, and also be particularly, most importantly, be energy efficient. I'm sure you have seen this report, Shalini, of 
the carbon the, footprint of some of these massive models. Right? They are mind-boggling. Correct? Yeah. And, and that is that is really because, and I'm sure we can do a lot through optimization of existing algorithms, but at the root, they are a recognition that you're running a workload and on, on hardware that necessarily wasn't designed for the workload. We can, of course, squeeze it out, but obviously we can also innovate. And there I see a continuum. You know, at IBM Research, we are doing work in, in, uh, in the next generation of digital cores that allow you to exploit approximate computing to drive efficiency. We have world-class results in this space where our scientists have shown the ability to, to do with you know, one-bit precision, two-bit training, uh, two-bit inference, four-bit training, where you can get state-of-the-art results with much reduced precision and therefore much better energy price performance. The next rev, you're also working on new technologies that exploit analog cores, right? Materials innovation that allow you to build new kinds of chips that really cater to uh, these workloads and, and have a promise of being significantly more effective and power efficient. And then, of course, comes the world of quantum uh, and, and its implications to AI as we drive the ability to build larger quantum systems with more qubits and better coherence it's clear that it's going to change the way we approach certain classes of AI problems, whether it is optimization problems or whether it is problems that allow us to truly leverage the exponential compute space of a quantum computer. So that's the other axis I'm very excited about. From today's digital course to analog course to quantum on the hardware side, that to me is like the hardware substrate. And then on the software and the theoretical side, it will be the advances that come to neurosymbolic AI. Wow, neurosymbolic AI and quantum. I mean, these are two uh, things which I'm sure our listeners are going to be hooked on and hope to have you back again and maybe after a couple of podcasts, come and talk to us about these in detail because they really sound interesting. Well, absolutely. We'd love to show you what we're doing, Shalini, in neurosymbolic AI. Some very exciting results on scientific benchmarks. And again, it kind of connects back to our one of our imperatives, right? A lot of what we're doing in neurosymbolic AI is really in the context of language, which is why I'm very excited that as we build today's enterprise NLP, these advances neurosymbolic AI will allow us to move the noodle, do them better, do them faster, do them with less data, be more trustworthy. Very, very excited. Great, great. That's that's a that's a beautiful picture you have painted, and I so look forward to uh, some of these areas uh, coming out of research. So, thank you, Shriram. Thank you so much for being on this episode of AI Infusion, uh, and it was uh, so much fun uh, talking to you, uh, discovering new things, new areas where we can collaborate, uh, where we can go to clients. Um, it's it's always fun to talk to you, Shriram. Thank you so Likewise, much. Likewise, Charlie. Thank you for having me, and uh, and I look forward to coming back and chatting with you and your listeners again. Sure. Thanks. Thank you. So, dear listeners, uh, thank you. Thanks to Shriram, and I'm signing off here on this episode of AI Infusion Podcast. Uh, today, we listened to Shriram Raghavan on uh, research interests in AI business. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. And see you on the next interesting episode very soon.